I Read Comics, episode number six. Yes, it's another comics podcast, and the big difference is, I'm doing it, and I'm a girl. That's right, a girl that reads comics. My name is Lena Taylor, and I read comics. Hello, my friends, and welcome back. Thanks for being so patient. On this week's show, I've got a whole bunch of new and interesting stuff to talk about. But before I even get to the comics, I want to talk about a really cool thing that I bought that I think everybody needs if you have a laptop. And uh, I'm only talking about it because I bought it and it's the coolest thing ever. It's not like I'm getting paid for this. Um, I do all these shows on a Mac PowerBook, my little 12-inch PowerBook, which is also one of the best things I ever bought. And if you own one of these things, I think all the Mac PowerBooks are like this, the fan runs all the time, and it gets incredibly hot. The heat sink is just horrible, and it will just burn the tops right off your legs if you have it sitting on your lap. And the solution to this problem is to put something cold underneath it, but, you know, you can't put those freezer packs because they get all wet. The solution is a thing called the Chill Pack, which is spelled Chill, C-H-I-L-L, Pack, P-A-K, and it was invented by a guy named Dean Haglund, and if you're a science fiction fan, you probably know who he is. He's an actor. He was on X-Files. He had a recurring role as one of the lone gunmen. There was even a little spin-off of it, and he came up with this brilliant idea of taking the stuff that's in a freezer pack and putting it inside uh, a material that, that stays dry on the outside of it. It's the kind of stuff that they use in hospitals for people who have burns and to, to keep body parts really cold. And it's 20 bucks. I sent away for it. I got it. And it's awesome. I love it. It's well worth it. In fact, I'm going to buy a bunch of them and give them as presents to people who have these same laptops because it is just the best thing ever. Um, and the text on the box is hilarious. It says, Chill Pack draws heat away from your computer, stopping the agitation of electrons. This allows the electrons to travel down the circuits in an orderly fashion. And who doesn't want the electrons traveling in an orderly fashion, I ask you? That's what we want for our computers. So go to chillpack.com, buy yourself one. It's totally worth the 20 bucks. It will make your laptop so very, very, very happy. So that's the plug for this week. A couple other little business things. I finally got listed on iTunes. Yay! So uh, you can go subscribe over there. In fact, I want you to subscribe through iTunes. And this is because the more people who subscribe through iTunes, the higher the show's rating is. And if you look in the podcast directory on iTunes, when you do a search for something like comics or comic books, four different shows will appear in the little box that's up in the upper left-hand corner. And right now, my show and the show by uh, the Comic Geeks speak guys are usually tied at one and two and we kind of flip-flop between one and two and because the boys at CGS and I want to achieve total world domination it's really important that our shows always be one and two it doesn't matter who's one and who's two so subscribe to my show subscribe to their show through iTunes and we'll always be one and two and then we will have conquered the world which is a great thing I also have a feed through Odeo which one of my listeners very kindly set up and I'm pleased to be listed there too including all the other directories that have podcasts 
podcast listings. So I'm going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about the Conan book that I picked up at Comic-Con, which is great. And it's probably the last one I'm going to talk about because it's the last one that has Barry Smith art in it. There is the obligatory gay porn, which I'll be discussing. And then I have some stuff to say about um, Superman and Lois Lane. So hang on. I'll be right back. Chronicles of Conan, Volume 4, The Song of Red Sonia and Other Stories. That's what it says on the cover. Of course, they don't tell you that the other story that you really want to get is Red Nails, which is even better than Song of Red Sonia. This is the last volume that has any art by Barry Smith in it, but I happen to think it's the best art that he did. And in my opinion, Red Nails is not only the best Conan, it's also one of the best comics I've ever read. Just my opinion. That's what I happen to think. So I'll talk about that in a little bit. This also has the stuff that came after Barry Smith quit doing the monthly Conan um, by John Buscema. And Buscema went on to do a long, long run of Conan. And, you know, it's good. And he was his Conan was probably much better known than Barry Smith's Conan. And I like it. But compared to Smith's stuff, it, it lacks that stylized thing. It lacks the personality and all the things I talked about last time with the characters being conveyed through eyes and motions. Um, Buscema's Conan is very much the action guy. Like the way uh, Gil Kane drew him in a certain way, he's just bigger and older looking and lacks some of the grace and uh, agility that I think Smith brought to the character. So first let me talk a little bit about Song of Red Sonia. It's the story that she's in is in two parts. The first is called Shadow of the Vulture, which isn't very good, so skip it and go right to Song of Red Sonia, which is a much better story. And the way he's drawn her here, uh, she's got this flaming red hair. She's wearing this really interesting looking male shirt, which is kind of cool. Of course, there's a critical scene where they go for a swim and she takes it off. Um, and the they had to do a little censoring on that, apparently. And there's a really interesting panel down on the bottom of page 34 where uh, Sonia and Conan are in the water and he wants to get it on with her and she pushes him away and he gets really mad. And <laughs> the point of view is looking straight at him and there's this little explosion in the water right in front of him, sort of at crotch level, which I don't know how they got that past the censors, but that's kind of cool. Um, she tricks him into doing a, a, a thievery thing with him. They go into this castle and uh, a tower where there's a lot of jewels and they have to fight with a giant snake and um, they end up parting ways at the end. You know that they aren't really meant to be together, but you also know that they will encounter each other later on, and of course they did. And uh, she's she's pretty bitchy to him, but that's just her character. Um, this, of course, was the first time she had ever appeared in a comic, and she was really an invention of Roy Thomas, although she was taken from another Robert E. Howard story. He created her spelling of her name and put her into Conan's world and made her supposedly from the area that would be Russia later on. That's why she's got red hair, and she's supposed to be a really tough warrior lady. Um... But they're an interesting pair together, and, you know, they, they verbally spar with each other, which is kind of cool, and um, it, it's kind of mean that she makes him do the dirty work, but that's just 
the way her nature is. Uh, I think later on when she reappeared, she wasn't quite so mercenary as she is here. Um, and there were some other stories that Marvel published later on that explained what her backstory was, which was kind of cool. Now, of course, later on, Sonya went on to have her very own comic, which ran for a long time, which was drawn by Frank Thorne. And I just want to go on record as saying, I hate the way he drew her. And I think I bought about two issues of that and then said, I can't do this anymore. Um, one of the reasons I really hate the way Frank Thorne drew her is because... Frank Thorne was really into drawing women like they belonged in Playboy. And in fact, he had um, something... (laughs) He had a comic in Playboy called, ready for it, Moonshine McJugs. What a great name. Um, And that's kind of where his mind was. So when he drew Sonia, she had this giant mane of red hair and she was wearing the um, chain link bikini and the thigh high boots and always looked like she was about to spill out of whatever she was wearing and I really just couldn't stand it so uh, I will go on record as saying I hated it so anyway I like the way Barry uh, Smith draws her much better here so that's a good one there's a couple of issues here in in this book with um, John, John Buscema drawing it and then the very last thing in here was something that Barry Smith had drawn for Savage Sword of Conan which he also did the inks for so that is a really important thing um, when Barry Smith does his own inks it just doesn't get much better than that because he really knows what he's doing so this is called red nails and not painted fingernails but actual nails that were pounded into a pillar and he has another female companion in this her name is Valeria she's a pirate and she's blonde so she makes a nice contrast to him as well and this is taking place in some place that's supposed to be I don't know where it is but these people that they're dealing with look kind of um, South American Indian so you know maybe the continents hadn't separated or something at that point I I don't know what the story is supposed to be the king in fact is named Olmec but he doesn't look like an Olmec he has dark skin but he's got red hair and this huge beard he really looks more like you'd expect Odin to look Um, and he's a huge guy even bigger than Conan is so there's all kinds of weird stuff that goes on in here lots of supernatural things as well um monsters and people battling with each other in this semi-abandoned city really gory really really gory and really sexy there's a lot of nakedness there's a whole sequence well i should say conan actually isn't in parts of it very much um valeria is in it a lot more than he is so it's almost her story and she's great so she deserves to be in it as as much as he is she's tough she's just as tough as he is uh she's really smart she gets out of sticky situations and um there's a sequence here where valeria is sleeping somebody this this serving girl tries to drug her and in order to get the truth out of her valeria ties her up and whips her with a cord and this is shown in some detail and oh valeria is topless while all this is happening too there's some tasteful lighting and shadows falling across the actual breast so you're not seeing any nipples here but it's kind of interesting that they put this in in the comic um there's a lot of blood i'm just skipping through it there's severed heads there's a crazy guy who shows up at the end there's almost human sacrifice and uh, conan saves the day as we expect him to but the drawing is great all of the secondary characters are really interesting it would have been easy to confuse a lot of the secondary characters because there are several of them who sort of perform the same function but they're all very distinctive and everybody has their own creepiness associated with them they're clearly in a place where um 
nothing is normal, and that's cool too. The other thing I really like about it is that the story begins、um, with Valeria climbing up onto a hill. Nothing much is happening. She's looking around, and、uh, Conan kind of sneaks up on her, and he says to her,、uh, "Oh, quick, let me find it." He he followed her from a city after she was run out of town for killing somebody, and he says that's enough talking for one day. I want you, woman, and I've not come this far just to turn around and ride off empty-handed. So he's followed her all that way just because he wants to to be with her. Obviously, he wants to have sex with her. But there's another scene later on when they're just sitting here, and she's sitting on his lap, which is kind of interesting. You never really see him being affectionate, but he is. He doesn't just toss her down on the ground. She's sitting on his lap, and he's got his fingers twined in her hair, and he's kind of sniffing her hair while he's talking to her. And then he's holding her hand, and they're just talking. Which is unusual for him. He's much more of an action-oriented guy, but I guess he's so smitten with her that he can't help but、uh, have this little moment of tenderness. I thought that was great that they did that, and they end up together at the end, which is also nice. And she was in a couple more stories after this.、And、I like them as a pair. They seem to get along really well, and、um, they're pretty funny together. So, Red Nails. That's it. Barry Smith's last hurrah. I'm very, very sorry. <laughs> That he wasn't drawing it anymore, but this is a great thing. And if you're going to buy any one of the the Dark Horse trades, I think I would have to recommend this one only because Red Nails is such a good story. So、uh, I'm going to try to get some more stuff that Barry Smith has done more recently,、um, and I will hopefully be talking about it soon. I have. His book Opus. He's written two books about himself, one called Opus and the other one called Guess What? Opus Two. And Opus is a really strange book. It has a lot of extremely beautiful art in it. But Barry Smith is a weird, weird, weird guy. So、uh, if I can plunge into it again, because I read it a couple years ago after I bought it, I'll try to have some intelligent things to say about that. So let's take a little break and come back with more other stuff.、Mm. Another website that I want to talk about because I love the stuff on the web is a site that a lot of you probably know about. It's called SuperDickery.com, and、uh, I'm trying to remember where I found the link to this. Doesn't matter. It's been dis- discussed in many, many boards,、um, and I, I want to talk specifically about one area of it. So, in case you don't know what it is, it's a, it's an image gallery basically、um, that this person I don't know what his name is has set it up and has. Hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands and thousands of covers of DC Comics, usually from the 50s and 60s, some a little earlier and some later into the 70s and 80s,、um, with hilarious commentary underneath it.、Um, if you know about the Gallery of Regrettable Food, the Lilacs thing, it's it's kind of like that.、Um, so here's why it's called Super Dickery. I will read this from the fact. He says, back in November of 2004, a guy named Mike Mish started a thread at Transformers Message Board about insane comic book covers throughout. The ages. Initially, it was a laugh at the expense of Lois Lane comics. But before the responses had gotten past even the first page, Mike had posted a pair of pictures depicting Superman burning a Father's Day gift from Jimmy and laughing in Lois's face as she begged him to prevent her from being forced to marry Titan Man. 
And the moral of this is Superman is a dick. He just does. He acts like a dick all the time, according to the covers. So he put together this giant site to talk about, uh, just to comment on these ridiculous, ridiculous covers that were there. It's divided into a couple different sites. There's some that are specifically about um, Superman being a dick. And then there's a whole other section about improbable things, many of which seem to feature Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen in a kind of disproportionate way. So... Just as an example, here's the very first one in the um, the stupid comic covers section about uh, weird science and stuff. So the comic book is Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane. More about that in a second. And it's showing Superman using his x-ray vision, or trying to use his x-ray vision, to look at Lois Lane, who's wearing a steel box on her head. And the cover says, featuring the shocking secret of Lois Lane. And Superman saying, Lois, my x-ray vision can't see through your lead mask. What secret are you hiding from me? <laughs> she's got a, a steel box on her head. Of course, she's dressed to go out, you know, like she's wearing a nice dress and pearls and everything. Oh, she's packing, I see. And the commentary says, how could whatever's wrong with her be any less embarrassing than walking around with a lead box on your friggin' head? And I totally agree with that. Um, as an example of another one, another Lois Lane one, um, so Lois is on stage with Lex Luthor, who's playing the piano. She's playing a xylophone, and Lois is thinking, Ha ha, I swore I'd be the death of you, Superman, and I am. The combined vibrations of Luthor's piano and this Kryptonian instrument are finishing you. Uh, an imaginary shocker featuring Lois Lane as Mrs. Lex Luthor in The, murder, the Musical Murder of Superman. The commentary says, Kryptonians invented xylophones. And they just go on and on like this. And, you know, I have some of these. I don't have a whole lot of Lois Lane comics, but I do have other ones. And he's right. The comics are just weird. They're so strange. And in flipping through it, I probably wasted three hours looking through all of these. And so, first of all, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane... She wasn't his girlfriend. She wasn't anybody's girlfriend. She wanted to be his girlfriend, but I don't think she really was. So you have a comic book about Lois Lane, who was supposedly in love with Superman while really despising Clark Kent because he was a, a wuss. He totally was. He was never around when you needed him. He, he just missed out on all the big stories. Lois got every good scoop that there was, so she totally despised him. And she was in love with Superman, but Superman didn't want anything to do with her. God knows why. And... If you look at all of these, it seems like every issue with Lois Lane was either um, she had superpowers, which were going to be gone by the end of the episode, press the reset button. She was trying to kill him, and sometimes it was imaginary, and sometimes she was under the spell of, you know, somebody. Or she was trying to get him to marry her, and he was trying to get out of it because he didn't want to be married to her. So, you get, like, hundreds of issues with these three basic plot lines, the ones where she's trying to get him to marry her are overwhelmingly in the majority. And I got to thinking, who was this comic book aimed at, anyway? I know who was buying Superman comic books, right? At that point in the, the 60s, it was really aimed at younger kids. It wasn't at teenagers anymore. It was, like, 8- to 10-year-old boys. Were 8- to 10-year-old boys really buying something called Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, to read about how she was trying to trick him into marrying her? For real? <laughs> like, what's that about? Um, were little girls buying this as some kind of twisted, um, not-really-wish-fulfillment kind of 
almost wish fulfillment, but always being thwarted in the end, you know, because Lois never actually got to keep her powers. They were always being yanked away from her at the last moment. Oh, and plus, she was always getting into cat fights with Lana Lang, because, you know, they had to fight over Superman, whether it was real or imaginary. You know, there, there's a couple covers where both of them got superpowers, and they were fighting over Superman, of course. So, why? Why this comic book? Why these plot lines? And why these kind of retro plot lines, even into the late 60s? So um, some of these are even as late as 68 or 69. And Lois is still, like, her only motivation, her only reason to exist is to get Superman to marry her. Is that a little behind the times? Maybe the comics were just a little behind the times, and the comic artists kind of hadn't caught up with what everybody else was doing. And I know that sexism was still completely rampant in the late 60s. I mean, the casual kind where people would just be that way. You know, it still is rampant, but in a much more subtle way now. We're not supposed to notice it. But back then, it was completely okay, you know, to to ridicule women for wanting to do anything but get married to somebody straight out of um, high school, even. I was going to say college. So here's Lois, and her greatest ambition is to, to marry Superman and be Mrs. Superman. <laughs> I wonder what her male would be addressed to Mrs. Superman. Uh, yeah, so Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, and I think they dropped the girlfriend eventually, and it was just Lois Lane comics. And yeah, I, I know other stuff happened it later, and she did end up getting married to him. But man, what a weird, weird comic book. <laughs> why did they do this? If anybody knows why they did this, let me know, because I really want to know about it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. We'll move on to the next thing, and uh, let's just keep thinking about Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. All right, on to the gay porn portion of the show. Yay! Okay, so what I have here is uh, issue number two of Sticky. And Sticky is gay porn erotica. Um, that's what it says, being published by Eros Comics. And uh, this was kindly given to us at Comic-Con. I was so excited. Number three is out, but I haven't gotten a copy because they sold out of it at Comic-Con, which was also great. Um, this one is, as number one was, written by Dale Lazaroff and drawn by Steve McIsaac, one of my most favorite artists of all time. So I'm not going to dwell too much on what's in here because it's pretty much two men having sex. Except that, you know, there's no sex at all for the first ten pages. There's a real story here, which is kind of nice. It's a sweet little story, um, and there's lots of sex in the second ten pages to more than make up for it. And it ends very romantically with uh, one man bringing the other flowers and a six-pack of beer, which I really like. There's also another little story at the end, which is just um, four pages called Too Drunk to Fuck, which is exactly what it is, and it's kind of cute and funny. So I highly recommend this. I can't wait to get issue number three. More what I wanted to talk about was why I think these comics are so important. As far as I know, these are the only really nice, sex-positive gay gay male comics that are out there. I haven't seen any others. God knows I've looked for them. But I actually cannot remember seeing very many others that are realistic. I know there are some gay superhero stuff that that's out there, and um, a few others that are more in the realm of fantasy. But this is the only one that that really gets to real people in real relationships. And I'm glad that Eros is publishing it. The reason I'm glad Eros is publishing it is because, in general, I really hate Eros. They're a division of Fantagraphics, and I would say 
99.9% of what they publish makes me cringe and run screaming. Like, I can't even look at the splash page of their website because it offends me so much. Um, here's a selection of some of the titles from Eros just to give you an idea of what they publish. So they have um, eight new theme anthologies from Eros, and the first one's called Blowjob. second one's called Dildo. They have another one called Footlicker. There's one called Head. There's one called Kamasutra. There's one called Menage a Trois. There's one called Pea Soup. Guess what that's about? And then the last one's called Rear Entry. Isn't that nice? And the one I got, they gave us some free ones, is called Menage a Trois. And it's really not what I would consider sex positive, with a very few exceptions. Uh, my buddy Molly Kylie has some stuff in here, which is really nice. And in fact, um, Fan- Eros, under Fantagraphics, publishes a bunch of stuff that Molly did, Diary of a Dominatrix and Saucy Little Tart are two of her series, which I love to death. I think Molly is a wonderful, wonderful artist. I think she does do some um, sexy stuff in a very positive and fun way. And she's like the one, besides the stuff that the Hernandez, bro- Hernandez brothers did. They did Birdland, which can- is a collection of kind of um, Love and Rockets alternate universe stuff. Some of the same characters are in it, but in a very different and weird way. And I like their stuff too. It's also very fun and positive. Um, but most of the other stuff is horrible. It's really... I think it's degrading to women. Okay? I, I know that whatever floats your boat is fine, but I just can't even look at the stuff because it, it just sends shivers down my spine sometimes. And the bondage stuff, I just can't even think about it. So I think that they need to have more sex-positive stuff because there should be more of it out there. Um, and there are enough good artists out there who can draw the kind of stuff that's interesting that women can pick up and look at, whether it's gay porn or lesbian porn or whatever, but just so that you can look at it and it doesn't totally creep you out, I guess, is is the way I would like it to be. I would like to have erotic comics that don't creep me out. That would be a nice thing. Um, so whatever we can do to kind of change the point of view on that would be nice. It's funny that pornographic comics are something that a lot of people buy but nobody really talks about very much like Eros is making a huge amount of money for Fantagraphics this I know and you never see these comics really promoted anywhere you hardly even see them when you're at some place like Comic Con and Fantagraphics has their booth set up sometimes they have the little adult section set off and they even have like this curtain in front of it which to me is amusing as hell it's like you're at the dirty at the bookstore with the dirty section in the back of the video store when they used to have the adults only and there was like this tattered sheet that you'd have to sneak through to go look at the filthy stuff and that's kind of the way it is um and even in regular comic shops, you know, there's usually that little room where they keep the dirty things. And I never see these things written about. I never see them reviewed. I never see artists mentioning this stuff with pride. Like, yeah, I draw these pornographic comics and I'm really proud of it. It's some of my best work. Who says that? Nobody ever says that except somebody like Molly Kiley because it is some of her best work and she's not ashamed of it. Um you just don't see people promoting it as something that they they want to be known for. And I think that should change. I think people should be drawing uh, smutty comics that they can be proud of, that they can put out there and say, look, this is great. This celebrates all sorts of human beings in a positive way, no matter what it is they're doing in there. It makes people happy and it makes them feel good about sex. That's the way I think it should be. And I'd be curious to know what everybody else thinks about that, too. Um I know that you all buy dirty comics. Somebody must be buying them. And if you're a comic book geek, I'm sure you're buying them. 
And I mean the really filthy ones too, not just the stuff that comes from Image and not that crap like Strike Force that I talked about once before. So let's get a dialogue going on Dirty Comics and let's let's get Arrows to publish some more positive stuff. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about Sticky is that although number three, which is again done by Dale Lazaroff and Steve McIsaac, um, is come is out. It's the last one that the two of them are doing, and I think it would be great if somehow there could be this groundswell of support for Eros to keep um, Sticky going with other artists um, to do the same sort of thing, to have these real human stories in a really positive way that they could sell. The fact that Sticky Number 3 was sold out at Comic-Con was great. It really made me happy. There's a... Um, sticky mailing list that Dale Lazarov runs that has like a 300 plus members so I'm actually going to write to Dale and say hey you guys should be trying to organize people to have more of this happen um, on the same sort of topic I also wanted to mention another comics podcast that is out there um, that is relevant because it's called Super Fag Radio and the guy who does it is uh, Zan Christensen who is one of the people involved in Prism Comics now, Prism is not a comics publisher. They are a nonprofit that promotes the work of lesbian, gay, and bisexual and transgender creators in the comics industry and um, LGBT themes in general. They always have a table at, at any con that I've ever been at. They've had a table, so they're at Ape and they're at WonderCon. They were at Comic-Con. We stopped by and had a great chat with them. Zan is a great guy. I've met him a couple of times, and they're always very generous about uh, giving us stuff that we can think about and, and review. And now he has a podcast, which is called Super Fag Radio. I love it. Um, if you look it up, it's on iTunes, and it says, Super Fag Radio is your destination for interviews with a wide array of queer comics creators, from seasoned pros to the newest up-and-coming talents. He's got two shows up right now, and let me just tell you who he interviewed, because this was pretty damn impressive, I thought. Show number one he did at Comic-Con, he got to talk to Greg Rucka, he got to talk to Ivan Velez, he got to talk to Phil Jimenez, and uh, Theo Bain and Jack Lawrence. And in the second one, he talked to Eric Schanauer, who does the Age of Bronze stuff for Image, which is, like, so incredibly impressive. Um, at one of the, the last cons, I can't remember if it was Comic-Con, not the most recent one, he gave a... Uh, Eric Schanauer talked for a long time at one of the panels about Age of Bronze, and I was totally impressed at the amount of work that he put into it. And it was great that it got picked up by Image and has done so well so far. So it looks like this is going to be a really interesting show, and Zan's pretty funny to listen to. So I encourage you, listen to Superfag Radio, because you might get something interesting out of it. Libraries are cool, in case you didn't know that. I was at the library the other day, and I was looking through the new books, and I picked something up called Writing and Illustrating the Graphic Novel, Everything You Need to Know to Create Great Graphic Works, which is a book by Mike Chin. And Mike Chin is a science fiction and comic book author. 
He's uh, done some scripting for um, some of the big names out there, and he did a lot of scripts for Star Blazer a while ago. He also he lives in England, and he's an editor of the British Fantasy Society newsletter, and he knows what he's talking about. This is a great book. It's the size of um, a big graphic novel, and it's illustrated in beautiful color. And it's a really good book for anybody who wants to get into um, comic books and, and graphic novels. When he says graphic novels, he's not specifically talking about like trade paperbacks. He means comic books, really. So he's using a highfalutin term for it here. And it covers everything. I was amazed at how comprehensive this book is. So there's an introduction, um, introductory section where he talks about what superheroes are, what's the difference between different genres. Um, talks about gothic horror, crime, action, literary novels. And then he delves right into the most essential elements of a comic book, like what are panels and how should they be set up? How can you use framing devices? How to do lettering for speech? How to do captions? Um, how to write your script telling the story. He actually shows what a script should look like typed out on the page. Talks about different kinds of artwork, how you might want to convert something from a script into a, a piece of art, what a character might be doing, even things like lighting and body language, special effects, and then a whole section on getting publishers, so how to pitch this thing, and what kind of resources you can find out on the internet. It's a very well-written book, and the best thing of all is that it's illustrated with, like, hundreds and hundreds of really cool illustrations that are labeled. Some of them are really small. It's a little hard to see them sometimes, but in general it's good. I recognized a number of things in here from books that I own, and he says in the end that there's a lot of original art in here that he commissioned just for this book. The one criticism I have is that the art is not clearly labeled as either belonging to an existing comic book or something that he had specially done for this. I, I wish that could have been identified a little bit better. If you see something that you own, you'll go, oh yeah, I have that book. That's really cool. And if you don't, you'll go, wow, I really wish that I could get that. But I think this is a great book. And, and I think even if you're not interested in making a comic book, this might help you understand the comic books that you already read. It's kind of like Scott McCloud's stuff, but less theoretical. This is more nuts and bolts and technical, um, tactical, I think is the word, where you just want to understand what's happening on the page and why an author, a scripter, or an artist chose to do something the way they did, why they might have illustrated something in a way. Um, some of the best parts of it are when he, he gives examples of two different ways that a page might be illustrated, and you can immediately see just from the illustrations why it's more effective in one way than another, and why illustrating and, and writing for comic books is much more like a movie than it is like a book. So even though it's called a graphic novel, it's not a novel in the way we think of novels, where everything is told with words. It's much more like a movie that's on paper, which is, of course, why comic books makes the transition into animation so well, because it's not like it's going back into words. It's going into pictures that essentially move. Um, as someone said about Speed Racer, it's like drawings being shown to you briskly rather than actual animation. So I think this is a good book. And, you know, I got it from the library, so I didn't have to pay for it. But I might go out and buy a copy anyway. So I think that's the show this week. I'll have lots more new stuff to talk about next time. And to all my friends out there, in the meantime, I say Excelsior. Excelsior. <laughs>